Exactly 100 years ago, in July 1920, King George V and his wife Queen Mary travelled to Swansea. As part of their tour, in a grand ceremony, the King laid the foundation stone for the University College of Swansea. There was much talk about how education was the best preparation for life, and that its true aim was the enlargement of the human spirit. This ceremony of self-confidence disguised the fact that the stone was laid in the grounds of Singleton Park, without anyone knowing exactly how or when the university would fully operate in only a few months' time. In fact, despite the stone being laid, it was quickly uprooted once the king left and was lost for 17 years. Those first years of the university were tumultuous and often uncertain, but they were the beginnings of a process that would turn the college, or Swansea University as it later became, into one of the key economic and intellectual forces in South Wales. Welcome to A History of University Life, the podcast celebrating Swansea University's centenary. My name is Sam Blacksland, and I have just written a book about the university to mark its centenary, called Swansea University, Campus and Community in a Post-War World, 1945 to 2020. In this four-part series, I'm going to explore some of the more unusual and interesting things I uncovered during this research. In this first episode, I'll be talking about those early foundation years and how the university developed in the first few decades of its life, looking particularly at some of the most famous names who shaped the university and helped cement its reputation. In all of this, I'm going to have some help from expert historians, archivists, and from those who lived the history themselves. Swansea University opened its doors to 89 students in 1920. In its centenary year, it has 21,000 students and has expanded to be a physically huge institution, with two expansive campuses and a global presence. But the immediate years after the founding of the college were rough, not least because it wasn't even clear which buildings on the allocated Singleton Park site were going to be suitable for a university. Singleton Abbey, the neo-Gothic country house that had, until that point, been the home of the wealthy Vivian family, had been earmarked as the new centre of the university. But this wasn't straightforward, as historian Carmen Thomas explains. When the University College of Swansea was awarded its royal charter, the building Singleton Abbey came on the market and the council bought it. And then they decided that's where the university would be based. And it was basically dilapidated. There'd been a bad fire. It was a family home. It needed loads of work doing it, lots of renovations. So sciences and engineering ended up in the Swansea Technical College and they shared facilities, which was really not very good because the facilities at Swansea Technical College were not great. By the mid-1920s, however, everything was established at Singleton Park. From here, the university could ensure that it began to fulfil the needs for which it had been set up namely the scientific and technical requirements of the community and the region. Sir Lewis Jones, who was involved with the university since its beginnings and held many important posts like chairman of its council, spoke about this in 1960. Well, in the latter part of the 19th century, British industrialists became increasingly aware that to maintain our position as a leading commercial power, we had to expand our facilities for scientific and technical education. Swansea 
at the heart of an important mining and metallurgical area, was a natural center for advanced scientific teaching and research. And local enthusiasm was effectively organized. The strong metallurgy department at the university was a key feature of those early years. But there were other important departments too. One was biology, which was set up by Florence Mockeridge, who was appointed its first head of department in 1922. She was unusual not just as a female academic in this period, but also one who had some vital responsibilities. She used her wit to build up a department from scratch and in rudimentary conditions. Carmen Thomas tells us more. What makes her unusual in many ways is that she went outside of the university and she hassled, cajoled individuals in the area for the use of um, sort of extra facilities. That's why Swansea, Swansea University at the time had a cottage on the Gower. It rented this little cottage on the Gower for field studies. And then she went to Mumble's Lighthouse and had a room there. I haven't come across anybody else who did this the way she did. But then all of the first heads of the departments, that's what they had to do. I mean, there was nothing. That's what they had to do. They had to set up a department, which I can't quite imagine how you'd do that today. You'd have a whole team. But Professor Mockeridge was known for her involvement. And I think the department became her life. She wasn't married. She didn't have children. And if she did, then if she did get married, then she would probably have to have left the position. And so the department became her life. And she was very, very involved in the students that she taught. She was also very involved with and concerned about the low pay with her lab technicians. And she did a lot of work with that as well. This was the kind of energy and vision that key people needed to show in order to get the university off the ground in the difficult years after the First World War. And this view of Mockridge is shared by other historians, including Dr Jay Rees. She arrived at a site that had no foundations for this biology department uh, that she was part of, in that little existed of the equipment required to make this uh, department grow. So when she arrived at the university, she was integral to this department's development and also the reputation of the botany degree, which was held highly or was highly esteemed by many people. So during her 32 years at the university, she very much developed the biology department and pushed for greater accommodation. Now, we see this during her time as Dean of Faculty of Science and later the Vice Principal. We will hear much more about influential women at the university in a later episode. However, in the first few decades of the university, it was not only the sciences and engineering subjects that developed a good reputation. Art subjects were also taught. The philosophy department was very significant at Swansea and became more so when Rush Rees joined it in 1940. The philosopher Rush Rees, who was principally known as the student friend and literary executor of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Emily Hewitt is an assistant archivist at Swansea University. She manages the papers left behind by Rees, which form a part of a huge archival collection that the university has built up about its own history. The university collections as a whole comprise of about 300 metres and they cover from institutional minutes to photographs to student newspapers and to personal collections, as well as the records of our academic departments. In regards to the papers of sort of notable figures, so for example, we have Rush Reese's collection, and they are very much personal papers. They include correspondence, lecture notes, further documentation, you know, exam papers, things like that. And they really give a, a great insight 
into the person's life while at university, while at studying or working at the university. These personal papers reveal that Rees was an intense man and that he was indeed close friends with Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of the most famous philosophers of the age. The two would often walk along the shoreline of Swansea Bay, so deep in thought and conversation that they would reach the end of Mumbles, four miles away. Swansea University was developing into an epicentre of intellectual thought. However, as with so many aspects of life between 1939 and 1945, the Second World War changed everything at the university. Swansea Town itself suffered hugely in the Blitz, but the university's campus was untouched. That didn't mean that things there weren't very different. Singleton Park became a relatively safe home to academics from elsewhere, working on the war effort. Carmen Thomas is a historian of science and has investigated the work that went on in Swansea during this period. The institution had a government research project. It was top secret. They commandeered a large part of metallurgy, physics and chemistry. And it was locked up with, a special, with, with special locks, apparently, that nobody else could use. Even the, the people who cleaned and the groundsmen were not allowed near them. They had a, a security team that patrolled around that particular area. So apparently the only thing they knew about it was the fact that there were the odd blasts that used to go off in Singleton Park in a building they put up in Singleton Park. So they knew that they were up to something, but nobody knew what. For the male students, they had to join either the Air Corps or the Home Guard. So you'd have uniform, you would be armed, and they had to take part in the manoeuvres along the beach. The beach had to be patrolled every night. Swansea Bay had to be patrolled. So two nights of those weeks, it was university students who would do that. But I have read, though, somewhere there was a positive side that because there was people coming in from London, different areas, and that there was more dances and there was a bit more social activity. But the research department didn't involve themselves. They kept themselves very much to themselves. The war took its toll on the university. 28 current or former students were killed and many staff members were forced to leave to concentrate on research related to the war effort. Student numbers dropped by half of what they'd been in the mid-1930s to a tiny figure of 340. It's the years after the Second World War that mark a real period of advance for Swansea University. One of the reasons for this was that it appointed a new principal in 1947 called John Fulton, who would arguably do more to change the university than anyone else in its entire history. In the next episode, we'll find out more about how he changed the physical appearance of the campus, but he also did a lot of important things regarding how the university operated. After the horrors of war, people like Fulton began to articulate an old idea but in a fresh way. They believed that specialists needed a more well-rounded and humane education because narrow thought had contributed to the ideas behind Nazism. Dr J. Rees has followed Fulton's career. There is this fear about the scientists don't really understand the humane implications of their inventions. So there becomes a consensus within higher education that students need to be well-rounded, good citizens. And what I mean by that is that they have a sense of the humanities within their discipline. 
So when Fulton comes to Swansea University, he recognises from the outset that he needs to counter what many have called departmentalism or even specialism. The idea that you are consumed only by your discipline and only interact with people within your discipline, when obviously this is a problem for the sciences in light of what the war had thrown up. As a result, Fulton fundamentally changed the way students were taught. He's best remembered for the freshers' lectures and essays. The essays for the time were quite novel. Here's one former student from the early 1950s, John Mydred Thomas, who would later become director of the Royal Institution, remembering what Fulton wanted these schemes to achieve. He insisted that every first-year student should write at least four essays and read them to a member of staff. I had to read an essay to Rush Rees. Now, Rush Rees was a Wittgenstein authority and a friend of Wittgenstein, right? I read another one to the professor of French. I read another one to the principal himself. And I read another one to Gareth Evans, who was an applied mathematician, a very interesting man. Do you remember what the topics of any of these essays were? What did you read to Rush Rees? I'm particularly Uh, intrigued. The idea of leadership in a democracy. That was the title. But he didn't say a thing. He was pretty laconic. It also meant that Fulton himself as the most senior person in the college, met directly with young students and even gave them careers advice based on what they read. As another student, Peter Robbins, remembers. I liked writing essays. And in fact, Fulton actually said to me, you seem to be enjoying this. Have you thought about journalism? A series of freshers' lectures designed to complement these essays also allowed Swansea students to be introduced to topics outside their subjects, and to brush up against some of the biggest names of the day from outside the university, as Sir John Murdoch Thomas explains. Let me tell you, Garnet Rees was a lecturer in French at Swansea, he later became professor of French at Hull. He talked about the psychological novel and Marcel Proust. I'd never heard of Proust. Isaiah Berlin, one of the greatest orators that this country has ever seen. You know, Russian-born in Riga, philosopher, historian, whatever. He was lecturing on the brothers Karamazov. Glanmore Williams, the idea of nationalism in Wales. The then uh, warden of Llandovery College, who later became Archbishop of Wales, G.O. Williams, he talks about the idea of nationalism in Wales, and the other was the Welsh religious revivals. And Florence Mockridge, who was the professor of zoology, the consequences of Darwinism, and the professor of Greek in Swansea, Benjamin Farrington. Not everyone liked this approach, however. One who didn't was perhaps the most famous name to have worked in Swansea from the late 1940s to the early 1960s, Kingsley Amos. He thought Fulton was a philistine and disliked his approach. In the 12 years Amos spent at Swansea as a lecturer, he became a national star writing a hit debut novel about a young academic called Lucky Jim, which was at least partly based on Amos's time at Swansea. He would later win the Booker Prize for The Old Devils, and many consider him one of post-war Britain's very finest novelists. Considering how famous he was, however, he left virtually no trace of being a lecturer at Swansea in terms of personal papers. But a little bit of digging in the archive does in fact reveal that he was there. He was quite active in student affairs, for example, appearing regularly in the student newspaper. Archivist Emily Hewitt knows this collection inside out. 
he was interviewed by the Students' Union. Uh, it was just after his book, Lucky Jim, had been published. And a group of students uh, interviewed him about what it means to be a writer. That was sort of around 19, sort of the mid-50s, I believe. It's fantastic to be able to get that sort of information from something such as a student newspaper. And the articles really sort of bring out a sense of his personality as well. It does come across as a sort of likes to have a bit of fun and also to be well liked by his students. The good relations Amos formed with his students is key. And this proves that the way these dynamics played out could completely alter the student experience, even in the early 1950s. Another way we can learn about this is by speaking to those who were taught by Amos. One was Mary Morgan, who came to the university to study in the late 1940s and who I met in 2018. What was he like? What was Kingsley like then? Very funny. Yes. And not at all blimpish like he became later. He got very sour in middle age. And I mean, I went on knowing him for many years, you know, and jolly, very, very jolly. And, uh, and no side to him at all, you know. So quite a lot of students were friends of his. Did you go to any of their, because they used, they used to hold parties and oh, things, all the time. They? And he used to go time. to there. Yes. Describe a, a, a typical Amos party for me. Well, I met his friends in parties. I met Philip Larkin there several times, <laughs> who was a very lugubrious man. Mm, librarian at Hull. Librarian at Hull. Then in Belfast, mm. before he went to Hull. And, but oh, so he was in Belfast at this point? I think so. Yes. And then he went to Hull. Yeah. But he was a gloomy sort of figure. He and Kinsey were very funny together. I don't know who had the greater influence on whom. I think he must have. You see, he'd written, he'd written two novels and Kinsey was writing Lucky Jim. And uh, he'd written two, one called Jill and one called Girl in Winter. And although they were quite respectable literary novels, they never, you know, they weren't a big hit something. Mm. So I wondered if he was jealous of, of Kinsey's Popular success, you could say, wouldn't it? You're quite, I mean, he became quite a celebrity, didn't yes, he? Yes. Apart from being a, a writer. Do you think Do you think Lucky Jim was based on Swansea? Because there's always this debate a about... A lot, I think, a lot. Yes, yes. And he used to read bits of it out as he was writing it. By the 1950s then, the university had become established in more ways than one. It had a visionary principal at the helm and a thriving academic and intellectual culture. Some staff and students even became close friends. But there was a problem. Apart from the Abbey building, a library, and some temporary buildings in the grounds of the park, the university was physically not up to scratch. If it were to survive into the modern era, it needed to build and expand. How it did that, and with what consequences, will be discussed in the next episode. I'm Sam Blacksland, and if you would like to know more about all of this, my book is called Swansea University, campus and community in a post-war world, 1945 to 2020. And if you'd be interested in getting a copy, it can be bought through all the usual channels, but we're delighted to have partnered with Swansea's independent bookshop, Cover to Cover. The music in this episode is from the university's own band from the early to mid-1960s, who were called The Bogies. The series has been produced by Carnival Content for Swansea University.